For more Red FM podcasts, go to redfm.ie forward slash podcasts. Now, the Neil Prenderville Show, Red FM. Thanks to 106 We'll be coming back in a few minutes' time uh, to uh, the Ashling Murphy uh, murder trial. It makes the front and inside pages of many of the papers. Like, for instance, this morning, I see the uh, star leading with Ashling helped investigate her own murder. That is a reference to the DNA under her fingernails. And then the um, prosecution describing Yosef Pushka as a foul liar or a good Samaritan, uh, the man accused of Ashling Murphy's murder. Uh, so you had summing up yesterday by the defence and indeed the prosecution, um, whereas the prosecution was saying Pushka spun court a structure of lies and untruths. Um, but there'll be more on that, really, because the defence then stood up and had quite an amount to say in his defence, as you would imagine. Papers this morning um, talk about uh, Big Guard investigation. This is a story that was broke yesterday afternoon by Seamus Whelan on this programme. We were off the air at the time, but uh, he got a report of um, uh, a, it turned out to be a hoax bomb scare. Uh, but you have to take all of these things very seriously. It was an email that was sent, apparently. There was a Big Guard probe and all of the staff all of the staff and students in St. Coleman's College and in Middleton were told to stay in their classrooms. Yesterday morning, you had armed detectives, frontline guardie, armed support units subsequently travelling down to the school. Following all of these guardie inquiries and all of the armed support units, uh, the guardie said they were satisfied that the threat was a hoax. I mean, it's such an easy thing for some idiot to do, isn't it? To make a phone call or to send a text from an unknown number or sending an email from an unknown email address. And of course, you see all of the chaos and the mayhem and the worry that it can cause. Um, I'm very interested to see how uh, the couple Darren Hennessy and Emer Barrett will get on in court. They're a court couple, front of the echo today, launched a high court action over the out-of-proportion and unfair high rate of interest that they claim they're being charged on their mortgage. Here's the backstory to it just briefly. Um, they had a mortgage with the PTSB uh, and the court heard that Pepper, described as a vulture fund, acquired the couple's mortgage, which originally was taken out with the PTSB for their home in Dean Rock Estate in Toker. And they claimed then that Pepper is now charging them 8.5% interest Whereas if they'd stayed and if it had remained with the PTSB, then we'd be paying just over 4.3%. So instead of 4.3, they're paying 8.5. Now, I can't comment in any way, shape or form regarding that because it is an active court case. But it'll be interesting uh, and a brave move, actually, to take it into court. So let's see how they get on with it. It could have repercussions for many other people. You're talking about money and vast amounts of money. I won't mention much about it now, but the robot trees or the robo trees are back in the news again. Owen English is front and centre on this in the front of the examiner. You know that it cost us €404,000 to put in these robo-trees. It's costing like 18000 a year um, to run them, the running costs with regards to them. It's got, they've got, it's got moss, right? And the moss apparently, I don't know, some fans they have in it. And the moss brings in all of the bad stuff and all of the pollution and pumps out uh, clean air. I, mean, I, would, I would have thought really it would have been much cheaper than €404,000 if they just planted trees, but what do I know? But apparently they brought in UCC there in June, June and July of last year to undertake a study as to how effective these robot trees were. Cost two and a half grand for UCC to do it. And they found no... (laughs) I could cry. I could just fall on the ground and cry. They found no consistent evidence for improved air quality on the benches or in the immediate environs of the machines. 
So even right up next to the machines, they found no noticeable increase in air quality. Never mind the length and breadth of the Grand Parade and, uh, and Patrick Street that these revolutionary trees were supposed to solve and we'd all be breathing. Even around the robot tree itself, no improvement whatsoever. You just couldn't make that kind of stuff up. Anyway, I'll come back to other stories across the, the morning because it's a busy 15 or 20 minutes now at this stage. I want to just check in very quickly with Paul Byrne from uh, Virgin Media News because a breaking, breaking story on Lee's side. Not much to report on it, but what he has, he'll give to me. So, Paul, good morning. Good morning, Neil. Breaking news. Um, stab wounds. A man receiving stab wounds, apparently, in the Mayfield area. That's right. Um, the fire service at Anglesey Street and Valley of Land were alerted to a 999 call around quarter to nine this morning. The call said that a house was on fire at Annity Grove in Mayfield. Now, when they got to the scene, it was a, a minor fire, but they extinguished the fire. But as they were doing so, they found a man in a critical condition after receiving multiple stab wounds. Now, the ambulance service was notified, so too were the Gardaí. And as soon as they arrived, the injured party was um, uh, looked after. He was into the back of the ambulance and dealt with him for uh, a while in the ambulance. The man was struggling to breathe, so they were administering uh, all the medication and uh, assistance they could. Now, um, the ambulance service was there, including the West Cork Rapids response doctor, Dr. Jason Vanderbilt. And when he's on scene, you know it's an extremely serious situation. My understanding is that the man received multiple stab wounds to various parts of his body, his stomach, his back and his legs. Now, he is described as being in a serious condition. My understanding is that he will undergo surgery quite shortly at Cork University Hospital. The house and the area where this uh, incident took place at Annalee Grove remains sealed off. It will do so for a number of hours because a team of forensic officers will carry out a detailed examination. They will obviously want to speak to the injured party and that won't be possible until medics uh, deem him fit enough uh, because he will be crucial to this investigation. Uh, as I said, he is in a serious condition. Um, they will be monitoring the, the progress of his recovery and he will be vital to to the investigation. They'll also be looking to speak to anybody who is in and around the area just after quarter to eight because, you know, you will have had people going to work, you will have people going to school. So somebody may have seen something in that area at around that time. And again, it's, it's a small, close-knit community. Um, people heading out to work this morning, they may have uh, captured something on dash cam or whatever. So the guards in Watercourse Road in Mayfield will be investigating. Again, it's Annalee Grove in Mayfield early stages in the investigation but we can confirm that this man who's in his 30s has received multiple stab wounds and will undergo surgery shortly. I'm obliged to you Paul Byrne as always, Southern Correspondent with Virgin Media News. We'll keep an eye on that story across the morning. Meanwhile, I did mention many of the papers front and centre with regards to uh, the uh, murder trial that has Yosef Pushka before the courts uh, charged with um, the murder of Ashling Murphy and defending it, obviously. Uh, we had the prosecution and the defence summing up yesterday. I mentioned in the newspapers the prosecution were using terms like um, that his stories were that he was an inveterate liar, that his story was a, a ludicrous fabricated story, um, that this uh, that the uh, DNA found under uh, Ashling Murphy's fingernails reminded and was reminding the jury that Pushka admitted that he killed Ashling Murphy before he pivoted and uh, changed his his plea for the defence. Then Michael Bowman said Pushka began. Uh, he he said that uh, what happened, of course, to Ashley Murphy was without doubt um, barbaric and horrible. Uh, sympathy naturally falls with uh, Ashley Murphy and her family. 
but he said there is also a danger that we can fall into an error. He was talking about the fact that the alleged confession made by Mr. Pushka cannot be relied on. He says there's medical evidence with regards to that. So that's just um, just a few of the points that were being brought up in court yesterday as both the prosecution, uh, I believe both the prosecution and the defence have now summed up And because uh, I was reading in the papers this morning that the jury now will go out to deliberate uh, and make their decision. But Frank Graney will know more. He's the uh, court correspondent with Red FM and Newstalk and he joins me by phone. Frank, good morning. Good morning, Neil. Uh, pick up on the story at your, at, at your will. Uh, I suppose to answer the question, will they begin deliberations today? They will, or at least they um, should do at some stage today. There is still um, a little bit more to come from the judge. So you're right to say that both the barristers, the prosecution and the defence finished their closing speeches uh, yesterday. And uh, once they had finished those, Mr Justice Tony Hunt then began his charge to the jurors. That's the final stage in the process before deliberations begin. And I suppose his function at this point is twofold. Um, He has to explain the various legal principles to the jurors. He began doing that yesterday afternoon and he also has to sum up the evidence for them. Um, so that will take some time this morning. Is likely to bring us up to lunch and if they're not sent out this side of lunch then they are likely to be sent out a little later in the afternoon but that is expected to happen today at some point. Okay, because the prosecution very much, I mean you're there every day but as a layperson looking on it seems to be his first confession and forensics seem to be the central focus point of the prosecution, Right. Yeah, I think that's fair to say, and, and, and Ms. Amory Lawler said it herself yesterday, uh, not in so many words, but she uh, described the evidence that they have as compelling, and she said there was so much of it, she feared that she would leave something out. And again, it is po- important to point out that all of the evidence um, had concluded, had been presented to the jurors before the closing speech got underway yesterday, so the jurors would have been told that closing speeches are not evidence, they're simply both sides giving their final pitches, giving their opinions on the evidence that the jury has, he- has heard over the past few weeks and they are of course free to accept or reject their opinions but she said um, in relation to his confession she said that that was um, compelling evidence uh, of his guilt. He confessed that he killed Ashley Murphy. This was at St James's Hospital a couple of days after he's alleged to have murdered the primary school teacher along the banks of the Grand Canal in Tullamore and she said that in relation to Mr Pushka's claim that he doesn't remember making that admission, she said that that was an extraordinary position in relation to what happened. Uh, Mr Pushka in his evidence and he did take the stand in his defence last week you may remember and uh, he said that he had no recollection of those conversations with Gardaí. He was after having surgery on the 13th of of January he spoke to the Gardaí and is said to have made that admission on the evening of the 14th of January. We heard that he had various dosages of um, oxycodone throughout the day. Um, Quite a strong painkiller we heard and in relation to her claim that you know his his reasoning or his lack of memory was an extraordinary position to take. She said that um, they had called an expert, um, an internationally acclaimed expert in the areas of toxicology and pharmacology, a Professor Michael Ryan is based at UCD. And uh, he found that the medication, the oxy that Mr. Pushka had been given, had nothing to do with the state of mind, had nothing to do with what he said to Gardaí. She described his confession as unprompted, uh, spontaneous, clear, detailed and unequivocal and unimpeded by medication or any other factor in the hospital and she also questioned the reliability of the defence's medical experts uh, who gave evidence to the jury at the very end he was the final witness to be called especially in light of the fact she said that he based his report on the wrong dosage of oxycodone 
Um, it, for the defence, though, you, you referenced Michael Bowman. I did read this morning that he did bring up the issue of the DNA evidence under Ashling Murphy's fingernails by virtue of the fact that, is he making the point that it, you can't be proven that it was from a, a scratch or, or worse to that effect? Yeah, I, I suppose he was touching on something that Anne-Marie Lawler had also mentioned in her closing speech in, in relation to the um, his DNA evidence being found under Ashley's fingernails and that was evidence that the jury would have heard through the pathologist who carried out uh, the post-mortem and she concluded uh, that there was evidence to suggest that she may have had defensive wounds um, on her fingers and when Ms Lawler put that post-mortem evidence to the jurors again yesterday in her closing speech, um, she said that she was of the view that the DNA got there from uh, Ashley Murphy essentially uh, fighting back, trying to defend herself, and by scratching her attacker, she even went so far as to describe her as an investigator in her own murder, in that her actions resulted in the identity or a clue as to the identity of her killer being found under her fingernails. And in relation to that, uh, Michael Bowman and his a closing speech um, asked the jury not to make the same leap of faith as he claimed the prosecution had as to how his DNA got there. Um, he told them to take you know, a wide look at the evidence and to draw their, their own conclusions and not to rely on simply what the prosecution is telling them. Okay. Did either the defence or the prosecution refer back in summing up with regards to the eyewitnesses and allegedly what they saw and where they were? Yeah, well, um, there, was, there was a lot of time spent on um, the evidence of Jenna Stack. Jenna Stack, Jenna Stack was one of the first prosecution witnesses called early on in the trial. Um, and we all know that Jenna Stack made a mistake when she identified a man who had nothing to do with what happened to Ashley Murphy in an ID parade. And this was the day after Ashley Murphy's mm-hmm. murder. Jenna Stack was out for a run with her friend Aoife Marin that afternoon at roughly the same time that Ashley Murphy is believed to have been murdered along the banks of the Grand Canal and she described coming across a bike um, a very nice bike she said that was um, caught her eye because it was pushed down um, into the hedgerow and she thought that was strange and then a couple of metres up from that she described how she heard some noises she went to investigate and she saw a man whom the prosecution believed to be Yosef Pushka um, crouching over and holding down a woman who the prosecution believed to be Ashley Murphy Um, Jenna Stack said that this woman seemed to be in distress she was kicking out um, and specifically then in relation to so she had a very good description of this man she gave to the Gardaí she took part in an ID parade the following day and she picked out the wrong man and that was a mistake and it is accepted by all including herself that that was a mistake but the point that Ms Lawler was trying to make to the jurors yesterday was you know she was saying that they would have to ask themselves that because she made that mistake and she said that mistakes in relation to facial recognition happen all the time but she wondered did that mean that they should bin her evidence altogether and she suggested that it did not she said that making a mistake like that doesn't temper evidence about what she says she saw happening and the man that she saw holding Ashling down is Yosef Pushka and she described that as really important uh, evidence um, Michael Bowman did also touch on that raising question marks over um, um, her entire evidence in light of that mistake that she had made at the ID parade she said that she had made a depression uh, made an impression drawn on a split second something that happened in a split second Okay, so you referenced Justice Tony Hunt then beginning his charge to the jury, which I believe you're saying he will he will finish uh, this morning, um, telling them to you know that you you have to put sympathy aside, you have to put emotion aside, and and just deal with the the hard cold evidence. W- would this have to be beyond reasonable doubt? Yeah. 
Absolutely. Um, one of the fundamental legal principles in any criminal case, and it's certainly the case here with Mr. Pushka uh, being charged and having pleaded not guilty to um, the murder charge. Obviously, he has a presumption of innocence and it is up to the prosecution to prove its case beyond that very high standard of proof, beyond a reasonable doubt. It's, it's, um, it's, it's not like a civil trial where it's on the balance of probabilities if the jury found that you know something probably happened they can rule and on the basis of that that's not the case when it comes to um, matters uh, before the central criminal court and the judge explained all of that to the jury yesterday in, in great detail he said they were bound by the evidence and inferences may be arising from that evidence. He told them that they were not to speculate because, in his words, that's simply making things up and that's not allowed. He said there's no room for guesswork. Something isn't there, it's not there. Um, he said if something is of no significance, it doesn't matter, move on. He said whatever ways they apply to, all of the various pieces of evidence is entirely up to them. He is the judge when it comes to matters of law. They are the judges when it comes to matters of fact. And in a few hours, possibly after lunch, um, they will be left entirely um, with the case in their hands they'll be asked to decide on the guilt or otherwise of Mr Pushka but as is the case with any criminal trial until a a person is proven guilty beyond that very high standard of proof there is that presumption of innocence and Joseph Pushka is entitled to that having pleaded not guilty to the charge. Okay and just very finally Frank because I know you're heading back to court with regards to the jurors how does it typically work? Do Do they all stay together? Do they all go to a hotel or do they go home of an evening and come back again in the morning I'm curious? They, 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 they used to stay overnight in a hotel not far from the courthouse, um, but those days are long gone. The jurors are now um, usually deliberate between half past ten and lunchtime. They break for lunch and they're told to leave their deliberations in the jury room while they have their lunch. And then they usually continue their deliberations from two o'clock until four o'clock. That may vary. Sometimes they go home a little bit earlier. Sometimes they stay on a little bit later. It depends entirely on the jury. And they've already been told that they're under no time limit. Um, they can be as, as short or as long as they like. It's entirely up to them. We don't know what happens in the jury room. We don't know um, what form their deliberations take. It's just a case of waiting once the jury goes out, waiting for uh, the white smoke, um, waiting for a verdict. Mm. So, but they do go home of an evening and come back again Absolutely. in the, in the yeah, yeah. I think in, in the past when they used to be uh, essentially holed up in hotels it was um, with a view to I suppose not allowing outside influences to interfere with yes. the process um, clearly in the modern digital age that we all live in now that's a very difficult thing to do so instead jurors are given warnings at various junctions I'm sure they'll be given warnings again today they certainly were yesterday to only look at the evidence in the case to leave their emotion as you say and their sympathies to one side and to not go investigating the case to not follow any of the media coverage like our conversation that we're having this morning uh, to look just at the evidence that they heard during the past few weeks Okay and let uh, the jurors get on with their work and only time will tell. Frank, so much. Thank you for taking the call this morning. Appreciate it as always. Frank Graney, court correspondent with uh, Red FM uh, and News Talk and Bar Media. Um, for all of the business, text 0868104106. Fast look at some other stories after the break. Thank you. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818104106.
Cork's Red FM. Uh, examiner this morning is picking up on uh, the breaking news yesterday that Richard Satchwell, previously charged with the murder of his wife Tina Satchwell, Nee Dingovan, has been further remanded in custody for a month at Clonmel District Court. Um, and that's uh, an update there. So nothing much to see in that regard. You know the fellow with all of the different names and the baby's passports and stuff like that? Uh, that's um, before the courts have eventually now... I mean, they've got the FBI and everything involved in this, but uh, they eventually worked out and managed to find out what this chap's real name is. He's accused of using passports in the name of names of dead babies. Uh, he's been identified as someone with an FBI arrest record from 1970. And that's how they're able to work out that he's actually Randolph Parker, a 72-year-old. Um, he said the man in custody had a date of birth, 1951, um, and uh, he was the person who was previously calling himself Philip Morris. Remember, he was arrested uh, at the passport office in the South Mall. The allegations that he was using the name Philip Frank Morris uh, and a further allegation that he was using a passport under the name of Jeffrey Warbrook. Uh, so that story continues to roll on. Um, and also, you know, when people go to court over and over and over again um, and they get free legal aid time after time, it costs the state an awful lot of money now. So you have to kind of juxtaposition on this because people are entitled to a defence and if they haven't got the money to provide their own defence, then they get free legal aid. Uh, but in Canada, it's very different. You don't get unlimited free legal aid. It's got a limited amount on it. And there's talk now that free legal aid could be reclaimed from repeat offenders. Um, this is something that's being examined by the Attorney General because the Taoiseach has asked him to take a look at it. Did anyone notice that Leo Varadkar seems to have really rolled his sleeve, sleeves up in the past few weeks? He's becoming much, I don't know, what is it kind of grittier, more opinionated? I don't know whether it's election fever or we're kind of seeing a new side to him. But anyway, I digress. So the idea here is that, um, you, you, well, we wouldn't be able to constitutionally limit their saying the amount of free legal aid repeat offenders can get and get. What you could do is claim some of it back or take some of the money back. <laughs> How you go about that, I have no idea. But talking about money and issues like that, you know the, the different plans now regarding Ukrainian war refugees and the fact that um, we're just at this stage now, uh, the, the, it's just not working out financially anymore with regards to money or indeed uh, the health service or school places or the big ticket item, accommodation. So there's a lot of talk about uh, what's going to happen in the future because there's upwards of 800, 900, maybe 1,000 coming in, continue to come in every weekend. And an ever-increasing amount of Ukrainian war refugees are coming from other European Union countries. And of course, the, the, the claim is that Ireland is the big ticket country in Europe because of the very generous uh, money that we pay out and uh, the conditions that the Ukrainian refugees can can live um, and indeed work under here in Ireland. But there's also talk that, um, you know, you can't be leaving the accommodation and going back to Ukraine on holidays. And if you do, you lose it. But the update on that now is in the mail that any Ukrainian refugee uh, that comes into Ireland would have to actually find their own housing and their own home and their own place to live after 90 days in the country. So there'd be 90 days and the clock would be ticking. Israel and the Gaza Strip and the war continues to dominate many of the papers. The Israeli ambassador, so many people want the Israeli ambassador expelled from Ireland. Not everybody, I guess, I get that. There are many people who are defending Israel's right to protect itself. I'm not disputing that. Uh, but um, the Israeli ambassador, who I spoke to on air, 
about two weeks ago, said now, and is making the front of the examiner, that people are afraid to speak up for Israel. It's hard to do that when you see stories like in the mirror this morning where a correspondent who's been there says, yesterday I witnessed footage of children hiding under a desk in a study being shot. I saw the charred body of a girl, probably only recognisable by the teddy that survived the fire after a rocket hit her home and an even younger kid who was unrecognisable from burns after a bombing, which meant her parents might only have identified her from the pair of leggings that she wore. Um, so many children this have died. Uh, there's a story in this morning's Irish Independent that said there are images of dead children in Mickey Mouse pyjamas released uh, showing the cruelty of Hamas. So cruelty on both sides, absolutely. But the amount of people, uh, young, old, children, infants, babies that have died really means that somebody has to call a halt here. It just has to stop. And if that involves the release of hostages, um, it, j- it just really has to stop. It, it's just gone beyond it now. But uh, there's a bigger push on now in Ireland to expel the Israeli ambassador. And I hope to return to that story a little later on this morning. Uh, something that I will be talking about today and mentioned it yesterday is smartphones in the hands of um, children, particularly primary schools. It's like a loaded weapon in the hands of a child. It really is. Because uh, in 20 minutes... It takes 20 minutes uh, for a child to encounter harmful mental health content through TikTok. Just 20 minutes. And before you know it, they're gone down this awful uh, rabbit hole. Um, And the things that they would see, of course, would have awful effects on them. um, And none of them positive. So no phones, please, from Santa Claus this Christmas. Um, Norma Foley is saying, don't put it down on Santa lists. Maybe if she writes to Santa Claus and says, Santa, dear Santa, please do not send any phones to children in Ireland uh, this Christmas. Uh, that might help the matter. But um, this won't work, this ban on smartphones for children, unless the parents, Irish parents, are front and centre on it. Because you can lecture all you want. Uh, but until Irish parents decide not to buy a smartphone for their children in primary school, nothing at all will change. Um, a lot of stories then regarding... Oh, there's a cracking story in the English Times today. Uh, and and uh, I kind of know a little bit about this because my own daughter was born uh, premature you know way back in the uh, mid 90s but it's amazing now uh, that um, how things have changed year after year after year after year um, the uh, birth of a premature baby and the ability to survive at a younger and younger younger age in the womb is just astonishing I can recall when they were saying that a baby in the womb at 28 weeks would not survive independent living Now it's 22 weeks. 22-week-old babies are surviving now in hospital. A story that makes the front of this morning's English Times. And then there's a lot of alcohol-related stories. Um, We're eighth in the league of libations. There's a top ten league of binge drinkers. And we're eighth. Now, I bet you were thinking we should be higher than that. But give us some credit. You know, we're not as bad as people make out. I mean, we got a problem with alcohol? Sure we do. But Denmark's got a bigger problem. So is Romania. So is the UK, Luxembourg, Germany, Belgium and Australia. They're all ahead of us. And in fact, the English get a bit of a double whammy, or at least the British do, because they're saying this morning that British women are the world's biggest binge drinkers. Think about that. British women 
the world's biggest binge drinkers. And Rooney makes the papers today. And you can kind of understand, he shot to fame, Wayne Rooney, at the age of 16 uh, for Everton. He was only 16 years of age. He won his first cap for England at the age of 17. And he's talking about the pressures on him at that age were huge. And he says, it didn't really hit me until I was in my early 20s. He says, I spent a couple of days at home and would not move out of the house and drink, really, almost until I passed out. So he says, I drank till I nearly passed out as a release from the pressure at such a young age. I mean, you can kind of get that when you're catapulted to international stardom literally overnight. Uh, Talking about catapulting things, look at the profits for Penny. Where did Penny start? There's something niggling around my head. The first Penny shop was in Cork. That it might have been up in the Queen's Oak Castle. I, I just don't know why I'm thinking that. But anyway, you won't believe this, but very soon, Penny's, according to the Mirror this morning, will have annual sales, annual sales, this is per year, of 11.5 billion euro. 11.5 billion. Founded in Ireland in 1969, as the fellow says, and the rest is history. Text 0868104106. Oh, I'm seeing it here. The company's first store named Penny's still in operation today, was established uh, by Arthur Ryan on behalf of the Weston family. Blah, 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 blah. Ah, damn it. Damn it. Dublin. Get it off your chest. Call Neil Prenderville now on 0818 104 Red FM. I talked to Donald just, just 30 seconds before I go back to the phone lines. I was talking about pennies. The first pennies was Dublin. The second pennies was Cork. But I tell you what we were first at or what did happen in Cork. It was talking about free legal aid, about trying to reclaim money from repeat offenders. Uh, Seamus uh, just said to me in my ear there that actually free legal aid started here in Cork. It was a woman by the name of Mrs. Josie Airy, um, and she took Ireland to the European Court in 1979 because um, she was effectively debarred from getting a legal separation from her violent husband because she couldn't afford to take her case to the High Court. It was too much money. And on that basis then, um, she had to stay in the relationship and she found that to be unconstitutional and unfair. So Josie Airy from Toker and Cork became an icon for women's rights and fought a lonely battle against the system. Started in 1972 and in 1979 won her case and it was on that basis then that free legal aid started particularly in family law matters uh, and rolled out even further. That's my understanding of it and that was Josie Airy. Now yesterday morning of course we all scrambled to do the best we could to find out where John Joe Dahl had gone. He left home uh, down around the um, area, in and around the greater East Cork, West Waterford area of Tallow and areas like that, um, at four o'clock in the afternoon, having got the keys, he lives with dementia, he got the keys of a black Ford Ranger on Monday afternoon and hadn't been seen since all across the afternoon, Monday night, overnight and into yesterday morning. And just as we were coming off air yesterday, we got good news to say that he had been located down in Kinsale. One of the family members, the extended family members we spoke to yesterday was Donald McAuliffe, who would be a partner uh, his partner would be uh, uh, John Joe Dahl's dad. Uh, and just wanted to, we didn't get a chance to talk to him yesterday as we were going on off air, off air but I just wanted to get the backstory to the happy resolution to this. We, we touched base with him yesterday, but he hadn't actually got to Kinsale uh, to chat with, uh, with John Joe. So he's done that now in John Joe's home. I assume he's home and all is well, Donald. Yeah, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, he's home, all is well. Um, the the Gary 
brought an ambulance to Kinsale and they took him to the Mercy Hospital just for precautionary checks. And we were in note in an hour and a half. So it was a scratch, okay. not a bottle. Okay. So let's not race to the end of the story. My apologies. But wh- how how come he was found in Kinsale? How, how did it happen that way? Because he, he's a long way from home. Yeah. Um, we, <laughs> we, we can't figure out how he managed to get there safely, but he did. He must have gone through the tunnel. Uh, we don't know what I know. Uh, when I got to my jeep yesterday, there was only 10 miles left and, uh, in the diesel tank before it ran out. So he must have been driving all night. But and you had that, filled it that afternoon that he took it? Yeah, I had. I had filled it 140 euro in it to fill it up. So he, he'd gone through all the diesel early. There was only 10 miles left. But it was actually two years ago that we had the happy ending, you could say, because... There was um, council workers working on a road in Kinsale and they were having a break and they were listening to your show and they heard what was happening. And about 15 minutes later, they heard a jeep coming over the road and the engine was revving to the left and it was swaying all over the road and they said, God, it's terribly... No, this is only what the Gary told me. I hadn't actually got to talk to the council workers, but they said they pulled it jeep across the road because or sorry their digger across the road because they looked a bit suspicious and jeep came close to them and it stopped and they saw the number plating and John Joe inside it and sure enough they rang the guard and that was it my god was it okay he was revving hard and all over the road what kind of what kind of speed was was John Joe doing I wonder about about 10 kilometres an hour isn't that amazing Yep. And do you think he was doing 10 kilometres an hour consistently since 4 o'clock on Tuesday and Monday? Monday. I, I, would, I would think so, yes, because even when he was driving, he was never a very fast driver. So he, he was driving in because all the reports that we got, the, the last confirmed sighting we had was at 7 o'clock Monday night and he was going slow, but the engine was raving hard. Was that from Oi, was it? No, that was on the Capricorn to Dungarvan Road. He covered oh, some ground, didn't he, man? Yeah. <laughs> and it never is, once no. crashed, never hit oncoming traffic, never ended up no. in a ditch. It's just a miracle. Well, I'd say he, he ended up in a few ditches, all right, because there was, there was a small bit of damage to the Jeep, but nothing major, very small cosmetic stuff, nothing. But we didn't care about the Jeep, to be honest. We just... No, I'm, I'm not. I'm talking about loss of life or injury. It was a miracle. It was an absolute miracle that nobody got hurt and there was no problems in the end. It was just look. We it was lucky and it's great and we are thankful to the Lord that we had a happy ending in it. Um, how how aware was he of all of the events when you when you got to Kinsale? Um, not very. Um, so look, dementia it hit people different ways and different days and stuff. He he actually thought he was in Clumbell. Um and he didn't even when we spoke about it just in the evening, he didn't know he didn't realise that he'd been out all night driving. He thought he was at home in bed. Do you think he drove through the night? Literally oh, drove and drove we, and drove. We would, we, yeah, we would think so, yeah. We would think so. Because like it would take a good lot of driving to empty a full diesel tank and when the Gardaí spoke to us they said when they reached him and they pulled him out of the jeep that he was very sore and very stiff so 
perfect dial together. That's okay, not my man. Mind yourself. Great news. Thanks for taking Thank the call. Thank you very much. Thank you and thanks for all your help. Not at all. Delighted we were able to help. It's fantastic when we can and we get a positive result. Text 86 for all business, but particularly if you are uh, those uh, council workers who were very astute listening yesterday morning and twigged it and literally saw the jeep come along and stopped him safely and of course reunification followed later with the family so you guys uh, text 0868104106 Donal wants to buy you a pint text the Neil Prenderville show now 0868104106 Red FM so very good news there regarding John Joe Dahl sadly if you've been following the story of Jackie's sister over the past uh, week or 10 days or so not so good news uh, we were hoping that we would be able to help in a very positive way with regards to Jackie's sister getting the psychiatric help that she needs so she'd be off the streets. Uh, She was admitted um, for a period of time into psychiatric care but after an assessment she was allowed because she answered all the questions correctly and she was allowed out. So the family now are just in despair feeling very despondent, wondering what, if anything, they can do next. Of course, Jackie's sister has spent um, at least four years on the streets uh, with very flimsy clothing, eats very, very little, drinks very little water and is a risk to herself and indeed um, as a risk from others also. So that was quite sad with regards to how you can involuntarily get help for a loved one who perhaps doesn't know that they need help. That certainly needs to be updated in some way, shape or form. Uh, My grandson Neil died by suicide eight weeks ago. He was only 23 years of age and we got no help from anyone. I'm still absolutely distraught over it, just so heartbroken. He was a beautiful child and such a lovely young fella. He had his bags packed to go travelling soon and was looking forward to the trip. I reached out to Pieta House because I was suffering so much with the grief and they asked me if I was suicidal. I said no and I've been waiting for a response ever since. There's no mental health support in our country at all and locking people up during COVID destroyed our young people. My sincerest sympathies uh, to Jackie and her family. Samaritans, lads, are always listening on 116123. Uh, this is an appalling dereliction of duty by the HSE. You need to go down to Glanmire and have a chat with the management in St. Stephen's Hospital to get this poor woman signed in. Again, the issue there is to as to whether it's voluntary or involuntary. If it's un- involuntary, and she was assessed by practitioners, psychiatric practitioners, um, and on that basis, uh, she wasn't kept. She was allowed to, to leave, um, whatever criteria they use. I feel sorry for that caller's sister. I've gone through many personal mental health issues with a family member. The next of kin can sign the family mi- in, family member into hospital. Yeah, Yes, it did happen, but sadly it didn't have the result that we were hoping for. I have to commend you. His, your compassion to the family of this poor lady that is suffering is unreal. It's why I love Cork. We always try to look after each other. I hope to God that they can break through these rules to help that poor woman. I pray for them all. But it's very important, Neil, the work you do highlighting mental health problems that no one wants to talk about. Uh, just one or two more. I just wanted to ask, uh, are there any children? If so, would you not listen to the children, maybe? I feel so sorry. I'm working with people with all different types of dementia, and I see the sad impact that illness can have on people. I'm so sorry. It is so beautiful what this lady's family is trying to do for her. It must be exhausting for them, but I'm sure it is helping that poor lady in some way, shape or form, even if it's not possible to see the difference. Uh, You are beautiful and amazing people, and I admire the family's strength. 
I really hope that soon you will receive a beautiful reward in the form of warmth and peace of heart. Um, thank, thank you for that. But you can't really help somebody if they don't know that they need help. Such a heartbreaking story. My heart goes out to the family. On the other side, though, what sort of precedent would it set if we could lock people up for their own good? Once that can of worms is open, it could become a very slippery slope back to where we were. I uh, hope this girl gets the help she needs, says Stephen. Um, and one more. I must say uh, that with the time you're giving Jackie's sister and what you've covered, it's bringing brilliant awareness to mental health issues, at least. It's an awful story, but if anything comes of it, um, then they have um, you to thank for making such a big deal of it that it could not be ignored anymore. Well, I mean, I don't... I don't, I don't I don't change legislation. Uh, I know that there are many people involved in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis and psychiatrists feel uh, that the regulations need to be re-looked at, that the bar is too high. Um, but then again, um, you have to or with caution because there was a time, as Dr. John Sheehan was saying on the air yesterday morning, when people for all sorts of different um, silly reasons were be committed uh, to what we used to call asyl- asylums and mental health institutions for all the wrong reasons. We're back after 10. Now, the Neil Prenderville Show, Red FM. Pick up the phone 0818104106. Again, going back to a story that we dealt with earlier yesterday morning, and then we got an update just before we went off the air um, because uh, at one stage um, yesterday we were thinking, God Almighty, I hope everything will be all right because, you know, um, you're, you're, you're talking about somebody that was away from four o'clock in the afternoon uh, right through the night and into the next morning uh, driving a car and, of course, living with dementia. But everything worked out in the end. And I was chatting with Donald uh, about that story just before 10 o'clock and they were very keen uh, to hopefully track down uh, one of the, or the council workers who stopped John Joe Dahill yesterday um, heading towards Kinsale and made everything safe and all right. And Seamus managed to do just that uh, and did manage to find one of the council workers and it's Noel Finnegan. No, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How are you? Fair play to you guys. Um, you made all the difference yesterday. I've, I've talked through much of the story with Donal, but just give us your give us your version of events yesterday. Well, Neil, we were having our tea break yesterday morning and this chief passed us, 152 um, LH. Yeah. And like, like that, we're listening to your radio programme and we took no notice. And uh, next thing, when you repeated yourself and realising that this uh, jeep was um, that you were seeking to um, find this jeep and the man driving it. So myself and my work colleagues, we recognised the jeep and we said, that's that poor man. So um, uh, Peter Healy, my work colleague in Billy Desmond, they, we pulled out on the road and we seen him coming down the road again. Now, I must say one thing, Neil, this man, he was driving very, very carefully. To be fair, no, he's very driving very, very carefully. We put on the road. Peter and Billy back to the road, and I went back to John Joe and I spoke to the man. and I just said to him, I said, Listen, I said, there's uh, roadworks um, happening up in front, and I said, Just stay with us there for 15 minutes, and I said, We'll let you go. But in the meantime, I'd rang the guards, I told the guards where we were, and the guards said, Like, that they're on the way. So I just said, it was to keep him talking, in which we did. Were you chatting and away they, with them in the meantime, you were? Anyway, I'm a lovely, lovely man, Neil. You could not ask to meet a nicer man. Nicer man. That's not right. A lovely man. Don't hurt. I swear to God, you, you, you could see he was tired. But there's no way you could see. There's no way you got to think he'd have to drive into the night. Oh, my God. Well, he did because he went through an entire tank full of diesel. But it was very clever of you to say, just bear with us now. There's roadworks down the road. 
We'll let you on your way very soon. Call the guard. So th- at that stage, then, Kinsale Gardy arrived. At that, uh, that stage, I was still, I was still, the guards were still on the phone to me and I was still talking to them and I was telling John Joe that uh, my work colleagues were reading me down the road just to give me an update on the roadworks. I was telling John Joe that. And John Joe, to be fair to the man, he turned off the uh, engine and jeep and he said, sure, it must be done, it must be done. <laughs> to be fair to the man, honest to God. And he, he just done kept on talking about, you know, um, the horses, uh, his neighbours. Like, the man was confused, all right, like, but listen, Neil, it's just a miracle. He's a a long, miracle. He was a long way from Connor and Tallow and a miracle that he didn't crash. Absolutely, a miracle. But, but he was at the passes a couple of times before that and the man was driving perfect. He's driving perfect. I like you couldn't like he pulled in when we pull when we pulled out the road. He pulled in to let for us to pass each other on the road. It was an hour road we we're walking on, but it must have been he must have been used to some kind of a loop um, around his own place because he just kept on going around and around and around. Oh, and around. he passed a few times doing a loop. Anyway, all all is well. All is well that ends well. And thankfully, your intervention made all of the difference. How many of you are working down there doing that work, Noel? Uh, there was three of us, myself, my two work colleagues. And what are their names? Uh, Billy Desmond and Peter Healy. Okay, well, Donald wanted to thank all three of you, and he joins me again. So, found one for you, Donald. Found one, found them all. It's Noel Finnegan. Yeah, well, you're good at finding people, to be fair to you. Uh, <laughs> I just want to say, look, Noel, thank you very much. Um, I don't know where you're from or anything, but if you want to give the details after privately, I'd happily buy you all a point and have it sitting in your local waiting for you over the weekend. Just uh, anything we can do at all, just to say thank you and how much we appreciate your understanding and patience with us and was able to bring it to a safe conclusion for everyone so it's, look we might be able to do much but I just it's a small gesture that we might be able to just say thank you uh, do the three no, of you ta- do, do the three of you take a drink Noel we do we do Neil but listen that, that wasn't the reason why I was ringing I was just ringing just to say that like it was just a pleasure you know, to help that man you know, well, listen, you know, I know, I know that. I know that. Lovely man. I know that. I know that. But if you don't take it, I'll pour it down your throat myself. Make <laughs> <laughs> two of us. <laughs> so, <laughs> are y'all? No, are y'all no, Kinsale no, lads? Eh? Sorry. Are y'all from Kinsale? The three of you. No, no, Billy and Peter are from Kingsale and from Coachford. All right, okay. Long way from home, boy. So, listen, um, I also have um, some vouchers that I want to give you um, for a bit of a slap-up in Dino's in Kinsale. What do, you do for, what do you do for a lunch break? You bring sandwiches, do you? Sandwiches, yes, and flask, yes. Well, yeah, well, I would advise that one of you drives into Dino's over the next couple of days and brings back a load of fish and chips or burgers or whatever you have in yourself. I've got a load of vouchers here. And then after the fish and chips, you could wash it down with a couple of pints after work. How about that? Over the weekend, I'll have three pints uh, paid for sitting in Kitty O'Shea's bar in Kinsale. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to get him a designated driver to bring him back to Coachford. <laughs> I, I could I could pull a few strings and get them an overnight room in the White Lady or something, or maybe down in the Blue Haven. Or you know, we see what we can do. They could go on. They'd be going on the tear before we're finished. <laughs> They deserve it. All right. Well, let's let's make something work anyway. All right. Let's make something work. So I look. No I problem, just want to say, I, I just thank you so much. 
That's no Thank problem, Donald. Listen, we, we just hope to, the we hope to God, we hope to God, you know, that after walks out, you know, and yes, yeah, so like uh, that man was just a lovely, lovely man, and Ronnie really just just delighted to have to work out for that man. Okay, and so are you guys. So well done to the three of you. Delighted that we managed to chat with you. Nice one. Stay on hold, Noel. We need to work something out between you and Donal and Dino and the chipper and all sorts of that and a few pints as well. So thank you so much and well done, all right? Okay, Neil, thank you. All the best. Talk to Neil Prenderville now. 0818-104-106. Cork's Red FM. An interesting story going on involving Carrigafoy, Carrignafoy Community College down in Cove where apparently they've taken the doors off the bathrooms and the toilets down there. Not everybody's happy with it. It first came to my attention because somebody sent me some copies of um, a statement that was sent around or at least an update that was sent around by the principal uh, to family members of uh, children in secondary school. Over the past few months, concerns have been raised by parents, um, staff and students in relation to antisocial behaviour in the toilets. These concerns particularly relate to the gathering of students, preventing access to those who need to use the toilets, uh, causing damage in the bathrooms, engaging in other behaviours which are prohibited by our code of behaviour. I don't know what that is. Some of the allegations involve vaping. Um, anyway, back to the statement. We've uh, undertaken some remedial works which will make our bathrooms safer and more user-friendly for all students. Uh, the works have no impact on the privacy of students and all cubicle doors have been upgraded uh, to ensure that the locks are working but to allow greater visibility of the communal area of the toilets and provide a brighter, more spacious bathroom. In the boys' bathroom, privacy and hygiene have been improved by the removal of communal urinals uh, and improved access to cubicles, uh, which is quite interesting. Uh, We're examining the installation of CCTV in the communal bathrooms area to avoid, uh, in the future, to avoid antisocial behaviour and improve the environment for students. Uh, we'll be back to you with more information if this goes ahead. So none of that statement actually mentions what I'm told has also happened and that involves the doors been taken off. And I know that this is being bandied about very much uh, on, on social media. Um, they're saying, well, I see one person down in, in Cove is saying they had to remove the doors to stop people vaping. Um, but um, we have junior and senior bathrooms and now you can see directly into every bathroom so there is now 0% privacy. Okay, so that's just um, just kind of a, a bit of a, an outline as to uh, the story itself. But to find out exactly why and what kind of activity has led to this, uh, Shelley, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for taking that. Have you a student in the secondary school, Cargnafoy Community College? I do. Okay. I do. All right. I'm and a senior student. Okay. So what's your understanding of what's gone on there? Because I haven't been able, I'm not, I haven't been down there. I haven't been walking the corridors, but I have seen photographs, right? And a lot of them involve no doors. No, there are all the stalls, all the bathroom stalls have doors. And as the school has said, they've upgraded the locks. They've made them secure. You have utter privacy when you go into a bathroom stall. Um, They have removed like a little half privacy wall that would have been facing the main bathroom doors you entered the room. And they've removed the front, as I call it, the front bathroom door um, as you enter the room. Um, Do you know the corridor and the the, the door into the bathrooms? Mm -hmm. Is that gone? That's gone. Okay, why? Why? um, Well, my my child has been coming home over the last, and I will say a solid two years, 18 months. um, And they've brought up things like urinals lift off walls. No, I lost you a bit there. Did you say urinals pulled off the walls? 
urinals pulled off the wall, a toilet tank pulled off the wall, um, children defecating in paper cups, or I shouldn't say children, people defecating in paper cups and leaving them in the bathroom for people to um, pick up and clean. And in one instance, a, an industrial bottle of ketchup was exploded in a room, in the bathroom. Like what, smashed so, off a wall or something? Or I have no idea. What, why no would somebody defecate into a paper cup why, with a perfectly why good indeed. toilet? Why indeed. So the school has been battling this for quite a while. Uh, my child has been coming home saying that their teachers are having to stand outside the main door to make it easier for students that feel intimidated going into these scenarios that they can use the facilities. I mean, our teachers don't go to college, get an education, a master's and a degree. They do it to teach our children, not to police the bathroom. Okay, so okay, that's an okay. utter waste of resources in a school. And um, so the decision they've obviously come to is literally, you know, a, a, a last-ditch decision because they really can't do any more for the safety of our kids going in and out because of a few. But can you can you see under the cubicle doors, though? Because I did see somebody um, posting online saying they were very upset about this, that people would see their legs, well, they might be able I to first, see their trousers when down. I first, no. I mean, it's, it's very similar to if you go to an airport or, you know, a shopping centre or a cinema. There are gaps. It has to be there to be able to lift the door on and off for safety reasons if something happens to somebody inside. But, I mean, if somebody wants to get on their hands and knees while I'm in the Manhattan shopping centre and try and look under the door, then that's going to happen. Mm, the Manhattan shopping centre has an entry door. This, this well, it's more of a curve. It has removed door, it from the hinges. Oh yeah, they are. I, I used them the other night at the movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right, but yes. you know what I'm saying. Like there, there, there is there, there is, is But when you've got to the point that this much demolition is going on inside in what is a public facility, you can understand. Now, our, all our children, all our children are given a code of behaviour that they're to respect the school, other students, themselves, their surroundings, and this isn't happening in the bathrooms. So, you know, this is the last straw. They haven't installed cameras. If they are, my first reaction was to be very um, wary of this. I wasn't a bit impressed. Um, So that's part of the statement from the principal, which says, we have also been examining the installation of CCTV in the communal bathroom areas. This would be everything but not the cubicles or everything but not at the urinal. When you're in airports and when you're in all these other places, they do have cameras in the communal areas by the mirrors, by the sinks. And it's for the safety of people using it as much as it's for safety of the buildings themselves. Okay. okay. Um, But students haven't felt threatened in there. There haven't been fights or bullying or harassment, has there? it's, it's, It's been a lot. It's been a lot. And the people, the children going in there, I can understand how they feel. This, you know, if you've got a large group of people in that room, um, and it, it must be intimidating, certainly for younger people or more quiet people that aren't in a position that they can do that. Okay. Um, they also mentioned that these are these are teenagers who are who are vaping, and that that would be I- illegal in in secondary school, uh, I suppose. I would have assumed okay, so, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So it's not, but but, and that was my understanding of it was because of you know vaping or, or what have you. But you're describing all sorts of other activity, including tearing down urinals and tearing toilet tanks off and, and breaking the sink balls and yes, defecating into paper yeah. cups. Yeah. Um, but but surely 
surely these culprits should be found suspended or expelled and then you can put the doors but back it, up it, and all so of the all of the all of the students who are behaving can just get on with their so lives if these culprits are found how do we prove it was them that did it because if they've gone in and gone out and it's a public toilet and there's a lot in the school are using it how can you prove who did it but if they're in the communal areas by the sinks and the mirrors and you can see who is going into a cubicle, not what's in the cubicle, but who is going into the cubicle and then there's damage done. Surely you can lo- limit it to who possibly could have done the damage. So why would you but have a problem with CCTV it. then? Because it will stop damage. I don't, damage. when I realised it was for the communal areas, okay. as I okay. said, okay. like and, in shopping centres and, and, and airports. And generally speaking, what's the pushback against it? I, got, I mean, I got a text um, saying, today in Carrignafoy Community College, they decided to take the main door off the bathrooms in both senior and junior boys and girls. This is the photo that my daughter sent me today from one of the cubicles in the girls' senior bathroom. Not only that, but on Wednesday, there are cameras being installed in all of the bathrooms as well. They were told this by one of the teachers. I don't know if this includes the disability bathroom, but I'll find out. Surely this breaches safety for students as their privacy is now taken away from them when they are using the bathroom. So well, no, they, they have privacy. They have a stall, they have a lock. They have the same privacy if they use the bathroom anywhere else. Um, but yes, the, the, the but door, somebody, the But somebody, somebody in the corridor can see a girl walking out of a cubicle. Mm-hmm. So when I have daughters, so if my daughter is in a public area using a public stall, they will walk out to members of the public they don't know and have to pass to wash their hands and leave. These people aren't guard vetted. These people don't have child protection safety courses done. Yes, but, you know, but that's I, outside the bathroom proper. I'm saying somebody from the corridor can see into the girl or the boy's bathroom and see them coming another out. Another student or a teacher. Yes. Yes, okay. And, and that could lead to... Um, a smart aleck comment, a jibe, a crude joke, anything. And and yes, it absolutely could. But so minor privacy, I hundred percent, and that was where my hesitation on this situation was. But then when you look into things being pulled off walls, defecation in cups, exploding, um, that's sick. I, I know. Then we that are is. now talking about child safety yeah. and having our children going into a safe environment, which they should be able to use. Yeah. And the schools don't know any other way of doing this because they've tried everything else. Why would you so defecate into a paper parents. cup? Would you do it like, is, are, no. are they saying why would we they have to because the lock of all? Why? Yeah, yeah no, I'm just wondering if why? the toilets were broken and that's why they defecated into paper. And they could be, but this is why I'm saying oh, surely disgusting. parents should now be up in arms and go. Our children should be safe in there. Yeah, I know. And that's what's dangerous. the general? What's the general response to this? Um, I I, I saw it online, um, and and everybody was up in arms, and and as I said, I quite nervous about the idea but I did say to them can we get an informed opinion can we find I'd say it would be more productive to approach the school as it happened the next day the school issued that statement um, and I also have had parents who have approached me and said we agree with you but we'd be too frightened to say it online because of the uproar that yeah well you know the, the wild west um, online you get the head bitten off you we did contact the school and they said Cork, Educa- Cork Education and Training Board and Carrignafoy Community College consider the privacy of all students and staff 
of paramount importance. We're constantly striving to improve facilities in all our schools and colleges and conduct regular assessments to ensure there's no accessibility or safety issues. Recent remedial work at the college was carried out to improve the level of service available to students in a manner that ensured that there is no impact on the privacy of students. We're satisfied the work carried out now means the facilities are more user-friendly for all students. Now that statement is a million miles away from why they actually did this work and changed things, but that's their response and they declined coming on air. Um, the, the situations I've spoken about are what students yeah, yeah, no have told us their yeah, parents yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, because they can't say that it was student A, B, C or D that have done this damage. No, but what I'm saying is that it's not to improve, they say it's to improve the level of service service available to students um, it's actually, it it's actually it make the bathrooms more accessible to all those students who feel intimidated going into the okay, bathroom okay. and therefore can't use them. Okay, let's get some other thoughts. If anybody has them, text 0868104106. Is there a mobile phone ban in that school? Correct. How's that working out? Um, again, I, I mean, students will always say they miss their phones and they miss going on social, on, on social media and online while in school. But, I mean, at the end of the day, they can have their phones before school and after. The schools say that they're seeing um, a direct correlation from the lack of phones to the lifting of student spirits and being in interaction with each other. So I'm not in school. I don't know. My children, my friends' children have all said, look, we accept it. It is what it is. And they don't bring their phones into the classrooms and into school. Okay, you don't think that the carry-on in the toilets and wrecking them and smashing them is a protest against the phone ban, no? Well, I mean, you said yourself, somebody sent in a photograph from the bathroom. So there are children breaking that rule as well as... Okay, what are they supposed to do? Not bring them to school or surrender them when they get Um, to school? I know children that just put them into their lockers, lock their locker and take it out at the end of the day. What would happen if a child was found or a teenager was found with a phone? As far as I know, the phone is confiscated and a parent has to pick it up. Okay, all right. But again, I haven't had that for my children, so I'm I'm not sure. Fair play to you, Shelley. Oh, sure. Listen, I know that's why I wanted to talk to you. I'm getting a much clearer picture of what was going on in the toilets and before I chatted to you. The school is a wonderful school. Yeah. Well, I I, I admired. I admired her. I admire. Actually, I'm fully behind their mobile phone ban. I think it's fantastic. Uh, They put in a strict uniform policy. They put in the no phone policy. They really are trying to make it a safe, um, conducive for 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 teenagers and, and students. And I see it. Nice one. I'll come back after the break. Thanks, Shelley Cotter. Appreciate you taking the time. Text 0868104106. Your thoughts? Call the Neil Prenderville Show now. 0818104106. Red FM. Uh, meanwhile, over to Midland, what kind of a person would think that it would be funny or a good laugh to call in a hoax bomb alert or claim that there was a bomb at St. Coleman's Community College in Middleton? Well, that's what happened yesterday and Middleton College went into lockdown after that hoax email threat, an untraceable email. They do say that everything in the world is traceable though, don't they? But anyway, I was telling you earlier on, the armed response unit was there, the support unit, armed detectives, guardy were there. Also, I imagine there was ambulances, fire brigades, the whole lot in there. Parents got an alert from the school, don't come to collect your children. Students were told to remain in their class. 
um, and the Gardaí took it very seriously. Uh, subsequent to serious investigations, uh, they um, found out that this thing was a whole hoax and there was no issue in the first place. Not the first time, actually. In 2016, Whitegate National School was one of four schools who received a similar hoax. Other schools around the country as well. Uh, it's so easy to do now, isn't it, with modern technology and be able to hide. Actually, funny enough, Seamus went to, to investigate it fairly rapidly down to the Middleton area. He actually caught up with George Shanahan from the St. Vincent de Paul thrift shop. No, we didn't know what was happening. It's just we saw all the, the guards and the guard of cars inside the school and then the road was blocked off on each side. Probably going on for about three quarters of an hour, an hour, like that. Yeah, but um, judging Cynthia, they said it was a hoax. Like all the guards, the armed, armed, the armed guards and all over there. They were there for ages, like. And then the, the children came out about one o'clock, they were left out of school. Must be very frightening for children inside in a school to be told news like that. I wonder was it kept from them or what have you. They certainly knew when they got out, though. But anyway, it's talking about about children, very much front and centre. Primary schools recently, Norma Foley now is saying, not her words, but that she's encouraging Santa Claus not to bring any mobile phones or smartphones uh, for children going to primary school. Many of them have the phones already. So without the parents on board, this will never change, you know, because you're only kind of minutes away from a rabbit hole of trouble and worry and grief and all sorts of horrid things in the online world in the hands of a child, of course, or a primary school child, a smartphone can be a very dangerous thing unless there is very, very serious checks and locks and restrictions on that phone by parents. So that's what Seamus was doing yesterday, a special report uh, from uh, Cork Educate Together National School on Grattan Street. Um, so this has to be collective. Parents, do not buy smartphones for your children in primary school of primary school age and do not buy them a smartphone or a Santi to bring one this Christmas time. Uh, here's his report. I think that there's really enough going on in terms of just trying to mature during primary school without worrying about what's happening on the phone and the distractions of social media and so on. Definitely in school, but even outside the school, I think it's a better idea, really. Then there's a whole added, uh, I suppose, section of actually having to monitor what your what your child is doing while, while online. Exactly, and that is extremely difficult, especially for parents who might not savvy in the first place. Children are outstripping parents completely when in terms of uh, of knowing uh, how to access things and how to get around things on phones and so on and it's practically impossible I think for parents to really properly be able to police that. So I think it's just better that children really aren't given too much of an opportunity to do it in the first place until they're old enough to better appreciate uh, you know some of the responsibilities that go along with it. I, myself, I, I gave a mobile phone to my child when he was at the end of primary school and the eldest was probably was a mistake where he became a bit hooked on it mm-hmm. uh, and therefore we had to monitor it a bit more. The second child, we did the same thing and she was fine. So really it all depends on the child and you have to keep an eye on it and I certainly don't think we should ban 
plan it. Uh, I think it's a, it's really up to parents to to decide those things. And if there are rules in place in the, within the school, then to um, you know to work it out okay. and work within those rules. But planning it's a bit too extreme. Really. And how do you monitor your your child's activity online? Like I know a lot of the social media platforms like Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, they wouldn't have parental controls. I know that, yeah, but I mean, it's really, again, about trust with your own child and, and having the conversations about those things with the appropriate language, I would say. Um, you know, to see, basically to say that some stuff online is, is, you know, not suitable for them and try to have a conversation around that. Of course, some children are always going to be curious and try to, mm-hmm. uh, you know, take those thing, things that they shouldn't uh, check at their age. I mean, I'm generally not uh, not for smartphones with my kids. I'm very strict with them. I also check it very much at home. Uh, the older one got it when we were in Italy uh, because it was more a question of security. He was a lot on his own on the bus and here, here and there. So he was 14 by the time he got it due to that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have got it. And the younger one is now uh, turning 10. He doesn't have it yet. And I will also be strict very much with the younger one. I have a third one as well. <laughs> and how st- uh, and in strict in what way? At the moment, it's really more kind of looking a bit through what he does and also uh, talk to him about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think talking is very important that we see uh, what they know. Uh, there's plenty of time, you know, to to uh, move on to smartphones. I think uh, the, there's technology for communication you know a, a general phone uh, the old style analogue is perfect for uh, anyone up to 12 13 years of age but would a child that, that age just, uh, would they need an analogue phone I think they might maybe in kind of 5th, 6th class just for, you know, if you're late or, you know, if, you, if they're away or if they're walking a certain distance. The state of the traffic on the roads in particular is the big biggest fear, I think, in, in Cork City anyway, is traffic. Uh, it's not so much meeting strangers or anything anymore. It's 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 what what you can see driver behaviour is a massive thing. So, like, you you, you want to tell your kid if, you, if you're late to stay in a particular place, know where they are and know that they're well off the road. I have a phone myself and everything is timed on my phone like I've timed them and everything and I've had experience like not good experience on WhatsApp so I know what they mean because I've been personally like let's just say a victim so yes I think it's a good idea but I don't think they should like completely get rid of like no phone at all like a child can still have a phone as long as it's not like Instagram Facebook TikTok like I'm not allowed any of that, so I'm just allowed WhatsApp and YouTube and, and maybe some games on my phone. That's it. And do your parents monitor your phone then? Do they look at what you're what you're doing? Yes, they do. My dad is com- in complete control of my phone. He can lock it whenever I want. He can do whatever he wants with it. So, yeah, he's complete control of my phone, which I'm okay with. Um, I think that the government shouldn't control what children are doing on their phones and it should be up to the parents to decide what they're allowed to do. We should be able to use our phones when we want to and, like, how we want to because they're our phones and our parents wouldn't give them to us if they didn't think we were ready to get them in the first place. And what would you be using your phone for then? Like TikTok and Snapchat and, like, them kind of stuff. What age did you get your phone? Um, I think like 11, maybe 12, I don't remember. Is there any controls on it? Do, do, do your parents keep an eye on, on what um, you do? Or? They, they just, like, if I'm using it too much, I don't. They take it off me, but, you know, like, I, I have self-control. Like, I only use it for, like, about an hour, maybe, like, an hour and a half a day. Like, I'm responsible enough with it. That's why okay. they got it for me. 
You're more responsible than me because I'm on it all the time. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, what about yourself? Um, I think that phones are a good idea for contacting people, um, such as your parents and friends and other family members. But I don't think that, like, if it's not WhatsApp or Skype, like, if it's like a different social media where there's pic- like pictures and other videos mm-hmm. and more other things, I think it kind of gives negativity in a way because there'll be like fights on pictures and there'll be um, fights on this, that or the other about like stupid things, about pictures not being pretty for someone or um, if someone's taken a picture of someone when they didn't want to be taken a picture of. Okay, so you think it's okay for a normal phone but not a smartphone? Yeah, but you should only have like your phone in school for um, home time, like once home school's done. This plan to actually put a ban on smartphones is it going to is it going to work if you don't have the backing from the parents? It's not actually as simple as that. When it comes to devices, I think parents are maybe a little bit naive. I'm a parent myself, and there are times that I actually am not not fully tuned in to what the children are doing. While it's really important that we're aware of what they have, what they're playing with, the, all the different social media, they're ten steps ahead of us all the time, and we are trying to catch up. And I think, in the most part, parents want their children to be safe. Mm-hmm. And the real issue is, if a child sees something which is inappropriate, has inappropriate contact with maybe some classmates that they've left in school, and then it's 10 o'clock at night, and they may be seeing some content on their phone, where's the downtime? It really impacts on their sleep, it impacts on their relationships. There isn't really a wrong or a right answer but we are now having a generation of children who have access to a whole world at their fingertips that the parents and indeed the teachers are trying to catch up on every single day. Okay, that is uh, the um, principal at the end there, Maura O'Riordan at the Cork Educate Together National School. So the voices of the children you heard are all primary school uh, children. They talk of a time limit. Others talk about accessing TikTok and Snapchat. Uh, Others are talking about fights and fight videos. They also would have access, of course, if it's not in any way limited or regulated by a parent, uh, to porn. Uh, and also to be contacted by strangers or taking pictures of each other or creating fake pictures, fake profiles. Uh, there's very interesting research done recently by um, uh, Cyber Kids, Cyber Safe Kids that was reading about. The statistics are incredible. 40% of secondary school, secondary school goers reported cyber bullying, uh, with girls overall more likely to be victimised by boys. Now, cyber bullying would be within the tech sphere, and that, of course, would involve the use of, of a mobile phone but just drilling into that a little bit more now with uh, Norma Foley talking about the fact that parents must not and should not buy smartphones or maybe any kind of phone for a primary school student. Philip Arnell is the Head of Education and Innovation at Cyber Safe Kids joins me by phone. Philip good morning. Good morning. So that's the proposal anyway from the Minister but it wouldn't really work without parents being on board um, that children in primary school just literally shouldn't have a smartphone or any phone at all. Well, look, we, we would welcome any any initiative that increases the awareness of what kids are doing online. And I think it, we're missing the point slightly because 
in the 8 to 12 year old category that we surveyed only 47% of them own a smartphone and actually out of uh, tablets and consoles uh, a smartphone is the third most popular device and as we all know if you have access to a tablet and you have access to a games console a lot of the harms and risks that are attached to, to being on a smartphone and being on social media are just as prevalent on those devices okay, and they're so at home that'd be home use though wouldn't it Yes, it doesn't matter because, no, you know, you could say, well, look, if you if you take a smartphone, you can go outside and do whatever you like. But if a child's sitting in the house or they're sitting in a bedroom, we heard the principal there saying, you know, sometimes she's not always tuned into what the kids are doing. You know, that's the reality. So kids can be doing the same thing. So it's got to be a focus, not just specifically on smartphones, many of which are not used in primary schools anyway, but it's got to be this wider focus on educating children about how to stay safe online and part of that of course is the involvement and the onboarding of parents. Parents need as the principal said there to be aware of what kids are doing. They need to stay at least in step uh, if not a couple of steps behind. You know what's popular what are kids doing at the moment and monitor and supervise that online use whether it's on a smartphone, a games console or indeed a tablet, because the risks and harms are the same. Uh, but then should it be a case that the minister and parents should be being told that you shouldn't buy a tablet, a console, or a phone for a primary school age children? Well, if, the, if, if that's seen as the solution, but I don't think necessarily that's the solution, because we live in a world where it's really unrealistic as kids get older and prepare for the world of work and, and, and third education, uh, third level education to say have no access to the online world. So this is where education has to come in. We've got to provide kids, we've got to provide parents and teachers with the skills and the tools and the knowledge to prepare themselves for the online world. Because we all know there's a lot of great things in the online world. There's also a lot of bad things. And so it's about how you understand uh, what you're looking for how the online world works and how to protect yourself and others when you come across those things okay, okay, uh, okay. in the online world, but not okay. just simply put the devices in a cupboard. So that online world for 8 to 12 year olds, according to your research, is YouTube is the biggest, most popular app. After that, WhatsApp, TikTok and Snapchat. But also yeah. they, these children at a very young age can play Call of Duty or Grand Theft Auto. Um, I did read in your report also that some of them actually had joined OnlyFans, which is a highly sexualized website. They're children. Well, absolutely. And this, this is the point that I'm making. Access to the online world has to be supervised and monitored by parents, regardless of what the vehicle for that access is. Correctly, you said, you know, 28% of, of 8 to 12 year old boys have already played over 18 games. So it's not just about uh, a smartphone, you know, 33% of children have been contacted through uh, games with, with stranger, uh, contacted by strangers through gaming online. So these risks are real. And, and similarly, you know, TikTok you mentioned there, 37% of the kids that we surveyed already have a TikTok account, despite the fact that there are supposedly minimum age restrictions in place. And there are also parental controls. But, you know, kids are smart. I was a primary school teacher. If a kid has any basic numeracy skills, they know how to work out what age uh, you know, if they're, if they're presenting as 18 when they should be born. And so kids can put in those fake ages and they can get access to these apps. And we have the evidence here to, 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 to show that, you know. You have yours and also Amnesty International this morning saying it can only take as little as 20 minutes for a child to encounter harmful mental health content through TikTok. Um, now that harmful, I mean, th- that could be up to an approach from a stranger. I spoke on the air yesterday of a strange man who was conversing with a child. Thank God 
um, the child's mother took over the phone and picked up on the conversation on Snapchat with this grown man who thought he was talking to a child. That's kind of what they're talking about when they're talking about harmful mental health content. Oh, it's just one part. It's just one piece of the pie, to be perfectly honest. But it's definitely a, a real thing. And absolutely, there are people there who are representing themselves as something that they're not. You know, kids can be impulsive. Kids may be going through different things. They want contact online. They want to meet other people. They want to chat. And so, you know, it, it, they can be in a very vulnerable position through any of these apps. And as we know, of course, then, you know, uh, smartphones, devices, and so, in some cases, even game, gaming consoles give you the opportunity to message people you don't know. In some cases, obviously, then send images and videos. And one of your um, Vox Pops there in the previous thing uh, report said about, you know, we're not so worried about kids uh, talking to strangers. But the reality is that that old school, that traditional stranger danger that we maybe grew up with, with, in, in the park or in the street yeah. has now moved online and so well, it's really important to be prepared for that potential well it, contact from... Well, it has friends. moved online because your research shows that 40% of 12 to 16-year-olds um, post videos of themselves on social media platforms. Do we know what the videos are uh, and what the content is and why they're doing that? Well, look, it can, it, it can be a range of things. You know, we all know we've all posted videos, so it could be something very harmful, something very benign. It could be something more sinister. It could be, uh, as you said previously, representing as someone else or posting in a fake account. But the, the, the reality and the problem of that is it's twofold. One is that once you put content online, it stays online. So your intention may be one thing, but things can be taken and can be manipulated and used by other people. So that's that's a real issue. The other issue then, of course, is around privacy. Uh, you know, you're giving away potentially information about yourself that you don't even realize. You know, I, I used to teach kids how to make videos and it's always amazing how many times they would come back and there would be these things going on in the background or things happening uh, off, you know, off camera that they hadn't even noticed. And so, you know, if you're if you're putting those kind of personal videos online, you're giving away potentially personal information about yourself. And then, of course, you're compromising your own uh, privacy and in some cases, potentially security. Can you talk in any way with regards to the parental controls? Um, some of the kids there spoke about it in the Vox, but your report shows that many sleep with their phones under their pillows. Is there a percentage for the amount of parents who limit time or ask the children to surrender their phones at a particular time? How is that working out? Well, like 31% of the kids we surveyed have unrestricted access to the online world. So that means they can go online whenever they want. So, you know, 70%... So that's one in three is, is, children have unlimited access. Exactly. Now, that, you know, 70% is a high number, and that's great to see. But obviously, we've got to get that number higher because the reality is if you have unrestricted access, um, when you go online, then you don't really know what your kids potentially are seeing. And particularly then, the further away from you from you that device goes, i.e. into another room or up into a bedroom or being used at nighttime, you just don't know what kind of content uh, is being accessed. And so it's really, really important. There's, there's two things there. Parental controls are obviously often within games and apps and they are useful and they are a good tool. But as I've already said, kids know how to bypass those potentially. So the other part of that parental control is the actual physical discussion of what kids are doing online, monitoring and supervising their use. And as one of your Vox Pops also said, talking really is the key. And it sounds very trite, I know, but actually the more parents 
uh, and teachers for that matter are talking to kids about what they're doing online and normalizing that discussion the more um, that vocabulary will increase for kids to be able to talk about what they're doing and also then raise any issues or problems when they come across them but is there anything that can be done whereby a parent on the parent's phone can monitor in real time or at the end of a day check the history of what a child is watching Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there are there are there are, uh, both on the two major platforms, Apple and Google. There are family um, apps uh, that allow you to monitor different devices, particularly if all the family has the same type of device. So that's a really good thing. You can set limits. You can check content. You can look at search histories. But but the issue then there is that if you're doing that in the house, and that's great. But you know, if kids go say to another household or one of their friends' houses where there's not the same restrictions, then you want to also have some tools in place where they're not going to suddenly, once those restrictions are lifted, do something ridiculous or do something that they might regret. And this is where also then it's got to go hand in hand with education. And that education has got to start in primary schools. It's got to be part of the curriculum from a mandatory perspective. Do you believe that the word should go out, though, that parents should not ask Santa Claus to bring a smartphone for a primary school child this Christmas? Oh, it's definitely it's definitely a good initiative. It's a difficult one because you've got to get all parents on board, but there's no need, certainly, for kids really, other than perhaps the security argument, to have a smartphone at eight or nine years old. Won't they be more? Won't won't they be more bullied though if they don't, and their pals do? Well, not necessarily, no. And uh, obviously, if it's a community and a school community effort, then everyone's going to have that buy-in and everyone's going to be on board. We also know from some kids that they'll often go home and tell their parents they're the only one without a phone, only for the parent to, to dig a bit deeper and discover that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. So I don't think that should be the primary concern. The primary concern should be the safety of kids and making sure they're having a positive and beneficial experience when they go online. Thanks for taking the call. Philip Barnell from Cyber Safe Kids. Your thoughts as a parent or indeed as a user, perhaps you're um, maybe even a secondary school uh, student that might be listening. Are we getting it all wrong? Open our eyes. Text 0868104106. Now, the Neil Prenderville Show, Red FM. Really, I'm very interested in getting your thoughts on mobile phones and students and young children. And I, I know as they get older into the age of like 15, 16, 17 and what have you, it's very, very difficult. But in the hands of a primary school student, a child, uh, your thoughts as a parent, text 0868104106. How do you keep them safe? You may well be able to give some advice and tips to others. Uh, meanwhile, um, you know, I was talking about Jackie's situation with her, her poor sister who, in spite of all of her efforts, can't get the help that she clearly needs because the bar is set way too high for psychiatric intervention. Uh, my daughter is an alcoholic. We are, we are up in the house constantly keeping watch over her. In the few hours that we can't be there, she gets a food delivery service who delivers to her no matter what state she is in. If she turns up at an offie or a bar, they wouldn't serve her. But here are the bikers handing it over to her at the front door. Thankfully, she's been in treatment now since last week. So fingers crossed on that one. Morning, Neil. My own father is an alcoholic and has been his whole life. I've spent most of my life begging and pleading with him to stop drinking. Now I'm starting my own family. I've cut off contact as I've had to accept that there's nothing that I can do. It's very sad. And I'm very sad to hear about that woman, Jackie, and her sister 
for a country with such a history of substance abuse, you'd hope that there'd be more support out there. And you know, the f- thank you for that. And you know, you came to the realisation that if your dad doesn't want to stop, he doesn't want to stop, there's nothing you can ever do. But in the case of Jackie's sister, there are no substance issues whatsoever. Uh, I know a lady neighbour who has dementia. She was left alone for hours and days and on end, all alone. She's gone out and gotten lost. She's invited strangers into her home and she talks to nothing constantly. She has three grown children who should all be ashamed of themselves. I can't see why her GP doesn't intervene before she will be seriously hurt. It's the GP's responsibility just as much as the children. He has a duty of care to his patient. Uh, Doctors today have lost their morals and compassion and it's disgusting to watch this poor woman. Any medical professionals that can diagnose this poor woman as rational or capable or not a danger to herself needs to get themselves checked out, says Una. And just two or three more ahead of the break. The only way you can get that lady helped out is to get the guardie to pick her up for perhaps doing something wrong. It's cruel, I know, but it will get her into the system and get her help. She won't take help from the family no matter what they do. It's very tough on the families and I'm concerned about it all. Uh, morning. I can tell you, Neil, now that recently I tried to get a family member committed. The guardie came and spoke to the person. They said that if they take him, they'll only be bringing him to hospital and leaving him. Then the doctor came out another day saying that he spoke normally uh, to a degree but was agitated but didn't sign him in. There's nothing there anymore for people with mental health problems. And a final one for now. The family's only way is to get the guards involved to take her into custody and drive to the hospital and get her signed in for an assessment. All that happened. This is exactly what happened with Jackie's sister. When my mother had a breakdown, she was doing the strangest things, like walking around town with no shoes and socks on. We had to get the guards involved. The guards put handcuffs on her so tightly that it left bruise marks for weeks. It's a small price to pay, but in the end, she got the help that she needed after staying a few months in hospital. There are ways to get her into hospital, Neil. It's just not easy. I could talk for hours on this subject, but can't go on air. Apologies. Text 0868104106. Back after the break. Get it off your chest. Call Neil Prenderville now on 0818104106. Red FM. Do you remember about a week, maybe 10 days ago, I spent I spent some time on air ch- chatting with a, a nurse originally from India, came over here like others do to work in nursing in our hospitals. Um, and uh, there's an investigation now launched in the CUH with regards to the allegations of discrimination, uh, racism and horrible comments against uh, some of these individuals who were working at the time and going through the initiation period at the CUH. Now, they brought in uh, an external investigator, according to the journal. It was the journal originally broke this story, incidentally, that I picked up in it and spoke with, uh, with, with one of the nurses who faced this kind of verbal abuse and this uh, labelling, if you like. Uh, after that, then, recently, I think the Irish Independent picked up on the story. But what, what was said to them? Well, I can't, and I can do nothing at all that would in any way identify the staff member in the CUH who said these things. It wasn't a, a patient or anything. It was, it was during some, um, some training that they were doing at the time. And they were told, nurses, particularly from India, that they don't wash their hands after using the bathroom, that they come to Ireland to only make money, they don't care when Irish patients die, that Indian nurses come here for pregnancy and child benefits, that they spread COVID-19, that they bring rice with them and they don't spend money in Ireland, 
we got this bizarre picture of people coming in from India on an aeroplane with massive sacks of rice. It's insane uh, that they make hospital bathrooms dirty uh, and that um, this the, the, and a petition was signed by in and around, I think, 29 of nurse, nurses who made similar allegations in respect to the attitude displayed towards Indian nurses in this adaptation process. So an investigation is going on. We requested a statement from CUH at the time and got nothing from them. But this is um, just a clip uh, of what, you know, my conversation with one of those nurses involved about a week, ten days ago. How did you how did you feel yourself and the other nurses when you heard these these words spoken and these terms used? We were really shocked and we were really humiliated by all of these um, racist comments from the person. Yeah, yeah. Did you say anything at the time as to why these kind of things were being said? That you don't wash your hands or you're only here to make money or that you uh, bring rice from India with you, things like that. Just, um, just actually, we are we are really helpless and we cannot um, react to these uh, comments because um, the person is um, holding a good position in the hospital. So, and uh, if we react, uh, our career in Ireland will end up because uh, the person will make us fail in that adaptation, and uh, we will be like okay. noticeable per, uh, people there. Okay, so, so you, you, you stay quiet to, because you wanted to get through it to pass it so you could stay and work as nurses yeah but in what kind of context would these things be said i mean was it in a it's not funny like but was was it an attempt at humor yeah it was an attempt to be funny do you think I, I don't I don't know actually uh, why that person is delivering all these comments, especially to the Indian nurses, because uh, during the class, most of the nurses from India, so she is continuously um, delivering these comments, uh, mainly focusing on Indian nurses. Maybe, I, I don't know what okay. is uh, okay. the problem with okay. that. Uh, so the, so the yes. investigation, where, where are you at with that now? Um, actually, I'm sorry, I cannot talk about that point specifically. Okay, okay. But, yeah. but something is happening now. Some investigation yeah, yeah, is now. Yeah, something is happening. Actually, um, I heard that uh, two of the complaints, uh, the uh, CUH started to investigate okay. the complaints. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, it's and, and, uh, more than over a year. They just initiated to do good. an investigation. Eventually yeah. initiated some kind of an investigation. And are you now working here in a hospital setting? Yes, yes, I'm working. And how's that going for you? Um, so far, I am um, okay. And uh, the new hospital is um, good working atmosphere and I'm happy. Um, actually, of course, I would say that Ireland is a beautiful country, a very calm and quiet place. And, uh, you know, when we um, search in the Google or in the YouTube, like we can uh, fr- get the feedback that uh, the zero racism in Ireland. So Z- that's why uh, we choose this country. Zero, this you, country. You, you read that there was zero racism in Ireland? Yes, yes. From okay. the YouTube and the, from the social media, we could, we could find out that um, there is zero racism in Ireland. Okay, okay. From the media, yeah. Unfortunately, but with these allegations. Here, but, uh, but after coming here, it's like very opposite. Do you, do, okay, just let's leave this investigation alone for now, but do you experience racism in other areas of your life? No, never. Jo- I never experienced racism in um, any other country and even in the new hospital. Okay, so what I'm saying to you is now here in Ireland, are you, do you get racist slurs or things said to you? Um, 
Only from the Cork University Hospital, I have experienced this type of comments. Okay, but the, and, well, we've but spoken about never that. Never from any other. Yes. No, nothing else. You're getting on nothing with your else. life now. You're getting on with your job. You're settling in, although you're struggling to find somewhere to live. Yes, yes, yeah. Do Do you get any kind of uh, anything said by by some patients? Um, no. Good. I, th- I think that all the patients are very um, um, lovable and very happy towards Indian nurses, I, I would say. I have experienced uh, some of the patients uh, were very happy with the Indian nurses. Okay. And I never experienced. Okay, glad to hear it. Listen, Anita, l- let's see what happens with regards to these complaints going forward, all right? Uh, and perhaps you, yeah. might, you might stay in touch with me if you don't mind. So, an investigation has been launched now into these allegations. One or two of the other ones were that the Indian, Indian nurses, nurses smell, don't wash their hands after using the toilet, um, that they move to Ireland to steal our benefits, to get pregnant as soon as they can, to have three or four babies and take everything from us. Um, Mick Barry actually raised this, Socialist TD raised this in the doll recently. Mick, good morning. Good morning to you, Neil. Um, so there's not actually a whole lot can be done pending the outcome of the CUH, CUH investigation, right? Yeah, there's a CUH investigation on the one hand, and I understand that uh, there's two cases going to the Workplace Relations Commission. But the petition was signed by 29 nurses making similar allegations. Yeah, I mean, you would you would be concerned if you heard one such allegation, uh, and then your concern would be heightened if you heard a second such allegation, which we have done. Um, but when you would hear that there would be 29 um, migrant nurses add their name to such a petition, uh, in my view, it's time for the alarm bells to start ringing when you hear something uh, such as that. Of course, these workers are in an extremely vulnerable position, uh, which may explain why a few a few cases have come forward and not every name. Yeah, they may have signed it, but haven't proceeded after the signature of the petition. What, what, would you think, or indeed hope... I hope this is an isolated incident with an isolated staff member in a Cork hospital that is not across the country or across our health service. Well, you would hope that that would be the case. Um, But if you look at the Cork University Hospital, it's a a public sector hospital uh, where um, there is a significant degree of unionisation among the workplace. Uh, You would be worried as to whether there would, would be other workplaces, perhaps private sector workplaces, where not only is there not a, a union, but the company would be staunchly anti, anti-union. Um, the workers are vulnerable uh, when they are here um, doing this type of work. Uh, I understand that the uh, migrant nurses, the Indian nurses, uh, come over with a six-month uh, tempor- temporary visa. It's called the Atypical uh, Work Scheme. Uh, and then after after six months, say in this case, if they've passed their training, they would get a pin and they would go to immigration and it would be extended uh, for a period of a year. So someone who is a trainer or a manager in that situation uh, would have a lot of power. There would be a huge power imbalance there. And you can understand how people would be uh, wary about speaking out or coming forward. But I think the fact that a number of these nurses have done so... Um, you know, this is a really serious case and needs to be watched. Yeah, when, because of course, when we have a shortage of nurses and many of our own are going overseas, I guess the message being sent to international people who would be medical practitioners is they might be slow to come here. 
Yeah, and the, the, the migrant nurses uh, and indeed migrant workers in our health service play a vital role. Um, literally, they play a critical role. Uh, I heard it said the other day that the Irish Health Service would not survive for 24 or 48 hours if it weren't for the contribution that these workers are making. Mm. Uh, but actually, if you think about it, uh, the health service probably wouldn't even survive a matter of hours if it wasn't for the contribution that, that they're making. We owe these workers a debt of gratitude and they deserve, like all workers do, to be treated with courtesy and respect. And if that hasn't been the case at CUH, it's a case that will really need to be highlighted, I think. Okay, but so are they, are they, do they deserve an apology, at least? Well, there is a, there is a case pending, uh, and let's see what the uh, uh, result is of the allegations that have been uh, made. Um, but I certainly uh, think that if 29 migrant nurses signed a petition saying that they were being treated poorly and that there were racist attitudes uh, being displayed, uh, that it raises uh, major uh, uh, questions. And um, saying sorry is important. But saying sorry is a limited thing as well. You have to get to the root of this. So that's why in the doll last night I did raise two issues with the minister. Number one, that there should be mandatory training uh, uh, for staff in the health service so that um, you know uh, racism can be challenged and eliminated. But second of all, we need to look at the visa permit systems. There's a huge power imbalance and it puts workers in a very vulnerable position. Well, they are vulnerable if none of them actually challenged this individual. If 29 of them made similar allegations in respect to attitudes displayed and horrible things said, that they felt so vulnerable that they couldn't challenge what was being said or what was being claimed about them and their race. Isn't that kind of yeah, sad? And, like? and their vulnerability is not down to a manager in the CUH or it's not down to the CUH as a whole. Their vulnerability is down to the position taken by the state and by the government who organise visa programmes in such a way uh, that workers are in a very vulnerable position and face a huge power imbalance. Mm, Okay, Uh, that investigation is by a third party, independent investigation from outside the CUH have gone in to do it. Let's see what happens. Listen, just just while I have you, what are we we going to do um, uh, within our Irish political structure regarding the Israeli ambassador and I'm not suggesting that she should be given her marching orders although there's an ever amount of people saying that really that um, that she should go. Uh, Michal Martin is dead against that he said for many different reasons including the fact that it might jeopardise the ability to get hostages or indeed Irish hostages out um, of captivity. What, where are you at with all of this? I think that the Israeli ambassador should be expelled. I think things have got to the point now where we're not really talking about just a war or an invasion. We're talking about, you know, the likes of ethnic cleansing or genocide. I read there that the medics in Palestinian hospitals uh, now have a sign that they put beside some uh, patients, and the sign says WCNSF. Have you heard this? Uh, Yes, I have, but explain what it means. WCNSF, wounded child, no surviving family. I mean, it's, it's just horrific. And now we have reports that medics are, are being uh, put in a situation where they're carrying out amputations without anaesthetic, right? Um, so um, I think 
it's time now to say, you know, we've heard the words, now we need action. And I think if Ireland were to become the first country in the European Union to expel uh, their Israeli ambassador, I think every other government in Europe would more or less immediately come under massive pressure to say, okay, that's what they've done in Ireland, now you do it in this country. We're going to have millions of people marching uh, this Saturday and they would say, Ireland is the example, your government needs to do that. And that's how to put pressure on Israel and pressure on Israel is the way in, in, in which to get the Irish citizens out as well. Okay, just looking at the front of the examiner this morning where the ambassador says that people are afraid to speak up for Israel, that there are, there could be much support there, but people feel pressurised into, into staying silent. Do you, do you have thoughts on that? I see no evidence of that. Uh, I read the poll in the Sunday Independent at the weekend, which essentially said that there's a more than five to one majority uh, among people whose sympathies are fundamentally uh, with the Palestinians uh, uh, here. Now, obviously, what uh, Hamas did um, uh, on October the 7th was horrific, targeting of uh, innocent uh, uh, civilians, that is completely wrong and it doesn't serve the Palestinians. Well, that just, that, not necessarily the, t- the targeting, but the killing of uh, at least a couple of thousand of innocent Israeli civilians who are also going about their, their work. But, but you know, is the, is, is the Israeli response like a sledgehammer trying to crack a nut? Uh, uh, yes, October the 7th, um, I mean, that, that was totally wrong, but it didn't serve the Palestinian cause. And now what the Israeli state uh, are doing I mean, you know, it's 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 moving in the direction of a genocide uh, in that uh, country. It's 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 state horror, state uh, terror, to uh, to a, a horrific uh, degree. And we all know that the root cause, the root cause of the cycle of violence here, is a bloody and racist occupation being organised by the Israeli state and backed by many Western leaders, including the president of the United States of America. Having said that, um, aren't, don't Israel have a right to protect themselves against attacks like October 7th, though? The, and, the, to take, the, and to take out Hamas, which is the threat against their people? Yeah, but they're, they're, they're not so much taking out Hamas, they're taking out, this is collective punishment of the Palestinian uh, people. I mean, those 5,000 kids uh, who will need operations for the rest of their life on a recurring basis, those 4,000 kids that have died, they are not members of uh, uh, Hamas. And the cycle of violence will continue for as long as you have this racist occupation. That's what needs to uh, end. Okay. Um, I know that um, Sinn Féin have come out, not unlike yourself, asking for the ambassador to go. People before profit had. Where are Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael on this? Well, Fianna Fáil had the Israeli ambassador at their Ardesh at the weekend, which I, I, I and many other people just find absolutely astounding, given what we're seeing on our mobile phone screens and on our television screens. Essentially, um, the Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael uh, have made criticisms of the Israeli government. Uh, those criticisms have been stronger. Uh, than the ones made by many other leaders in the EU. But they have been words. Uh, they have failed to match their words with action. And clearly, when you see the horror on the screens at the moment, it's time for action. And why are you calling for, or are you calling for, I don't want to misquote you, uh, a boycott of Israeli goods? I think that while this um, uh, assault on Gaza is taking place, 
the idea of a boycott on Israeli goods is justified. I see that in Belgium now, transport workers in the ports and the airports have refused to handle war materials that are going to Israel. And of course, we have the example from our own um, history now, even though I was there, um, uh, from Ireland in the 1980s, where the Dunstores workers in Henry Street in Dublin boycotted the apartheid South African uh, uh, produce. I think that example is an example that's there to be followed now. I think any group of workers in this country who take that action would be applauded and would have to get the support uh, of working class people and and the trade union movement in this country. Mm, I wonder would there be much coming from Israel that we actually use and produce? You'd you'd be surprised. Um, uh, There's um, uh, a lot uh, of tech and that is uh, between Ireland and Israel. There's a lot of... Um, See a lot from the uh, food and drink sector and things like that. Um, uh, there is, and if you go online, uh, it might be worthwhile, one of the researchers there, having a look they at have. it. They have. Oh, no, I have them here, but I'm, lo- I'm loath to call any of them out, to be quite honest with you, because I don't want to be damaging anybody's business. But is it is it to boycott Israeli-produced goods or any companies that do business in Austria, in, in Israel? I think that um, uh, companies that um, uh, have business links uh, with Israel, that does need to be highlighted. For example, I'll give you an example. Um, there's a company in Penrose Wharf. Uh, Again, called, I don't want to mention any companies for fear of retribution. You know, the libel and defamation laws are like in Ireland. So I wouldn't be going there if I were you, that anything would damage their balance sheet. I'd have to pay the price for it. But if, the, if there were companies that had franchises or leases in Australia, in, I keep saying Australia, in Israel, is, is, would you go that far? I think that there are people who are going to the supermarkets at the weekend who are checking uh, what is on the back of the, the produce and who are deciding not to buy uh, uh, produce that is made in Israel while this uh, bloodshed is going on. And I applaud the people who are doing that. What I think would be more effective, again, would be if we had an example such as the Dunstores workers in the 1980s where workers themselves organise collectively and say, look, we're handling Israeli goods here. We're not going to handle them while this massacre is, uh, is going on. And anyone who would take a stand like that would need to get supported by the unions and by ordinary people generally in society. It would be uh, a good stand to take. But, but yes, we have a young Irish girl that's being held hostage by Hamas uh, who claimed to be doing what they're doing on behalf of the Palestinian people. Yet we continue to give aid and help and succour to them, but one of our own is a hostage. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, the the hostage situation is really... Referring um, to Emily Hand. Yes, uh, the the, the situation facing Emily and the situation facing uh, all of the hostages is horrific. Um, And uh, I think the families of the hostages in Israel... Uh, have organised themselves a, um, a protest outside the Israeli uh, parliament where Netanyahu is uh, based. Uh, and in large measure, they are speaking out against uh, Israel's war and saying, we don't want war, we want the hostages to come back. But the Israelis, uh, don't, the Israelis don't have them. They don't have the hostages. Yes, but is, the Israelis do have hostages. They have Palestinian hostages. That's right. They've they got a couple of thousand They're not of them. officially described as hostages, but there's, I think, over they a They would be prisoners of war. Prisoners. Yeah. They're prisoners in Israeli jail, jails, and essentially they're hostages. 
So what should happen there is there, there should be an exchange and a release of all hostages, the Israeli civilians that are being held in uh, Gaza by Hamas and the Palestinian prisoners who are effectively hostages in Israeli uh, jails. They should all be released. And the chances of that happening uh, are, are greater uh, if this war can be called off and if the Israeli government can be put under increased pressure. But what are the chances of putting in some serious mediator um, that would talk to both sides and broker some kind of a deal, a ceasefire and release of hostages? That's kind of the grown-up way of doing things, isn't it? I think that uh, you can say, is this going to be solved from above or from below? So you've got the world leaders and the power brokers. Uh, but in general, you know, Biden and Macron and Ursula von der Leyen have flown into Tel Aviv and have embraced Netanyahu uh, and have given a blessing to the war, albeit with some qualifications. Uh, I think there's far more hope if you look at progress coming from below. So we see the likes of uh, the, the, the millions, maybe tens of millions of people now who've taken to the streets, I think, in a lot of the neighbouring Arab countries. The dictatorial regimes are very nervous about the scale of the protests that are uh, taking uh, place there. We see the Jewish Voice for Peace group in the United States who occupied Congress and the Grand Central uh, train station in uh, New York City. That type of protest needs to be built up, it needs to be spread, and I think it will put pressure on the rulers and the power brokers to say this can't go on, we need to step in here. Okay, thanks Mick. As always, uh, Mick Perry, uh, TD. Uh, Paul, good morning. Good morning, Neil. How are you? Uh, Good, just staying with this for another few minutes. Front of the Examiner this morning says the Israeli ambassador says people are afraid to speak up for Israel, that there there is support, but they're afraid to publicly pronounce that support for fear of, uh, I guess, the want of a better term, the Irish... Palestinian bias. Yeah. Well, I'm Irish. I'm I, I'm Roman Catholic born, and I've always uh, voiced my opinions on Facebook with Palestine that they need a, a two-state solution to end all this conflict in the Middle East. But I'm actually afraid at the moment to voice my opinions because I'm afraid of being labelled. Um, anti-Semite, if that would be the word. Well, you saw what happened to you saw what happened to Paddy Cosgrave when he made comments on on X. And I have to say, I'm not quite sure there was anything wrong with what the man said. He was talking about war crimes or war crimes on both sides. But he he got he ended up he didn't lose his company, but he lost his job. Yeah, we see they're throwing this word around very loosely, and. People that have opinions on us, like what what Hamas did was totally wrong. Jeez, you can't do it. Um, and what Israel are doing at the moment is equally wrong. But for ordinary Irish citizens to speak up and say, "Well, this is totally wrong," all of a sudden on Facebook, you're going to be labelled. I know, I know, I know. and you're just... going to be labelled in a way that you, people are, are picking you up wrong. Like she said, that there's a wave of anti-Semitism rising in Ireland. No. There's protests over what's happening in Gaza with the bombing. The Irish people know wrong from right, and they're saying it's wrong. We are not anti-Semitic. We're not an anti-Semitic country. There wouldn't have a bone in our body that would be anti-Semitic. And we're not a racist country, by and large, either. You will always have pockets and and a proportion. But no, by and large, that's a false label. You you say that you're, you're afraid to speak up for Palestine, because if you do... Do you think there'd yes. be a picket on your coffee shop or your cafe or no, your restaurant? No, I, I, I don't think there would. But you know, it could be. It could be. Well, we don't know. It could be damaging to business. It could be. 
people might take it up the wrong way. Like, I, I, I'm I, totally against violence. I'm totally against wars. Both sides, as far as I'm concerned at the moment, Hamas and Israel are wrong. But if I was to speak up on Facebook, like I have done in the past about Palestine and that we need a solution there and we need um, a two-state solution, I'm afraid that I'd be labelled. And the Israelis are, are true. So you, so you aren't, so you aren't commenting online, then, are you? No, I'm not at the moment. No, and I, I, I'm, I'm afraid to. Like she's saying, the Israeli people are afraid to comment on what happens. Equally, I think a lot of Irish people are afraid to comment online as well because the this label will be thrown at them, and, and people will be looking, going, "Wow, what? Well, you know, we better keep our mouth shut." And it's not that. We're supporting Hamas and what they did. Jeez, absolutely not. It, it's not right. But people are afraid to speak out on, online at the moment because they're afraid of this label being being put on them. OK, OK, good points. Thanks for that. Paul Walsh, text 0868-104-106. Back after the break. The Neil Prendeville Show on Cork's Red FM. Our phone lines remain open after midday. 0818-104-106. I'd say this day should be tomorrow before I get to look back at the robot trees that cost us over 400 grand. Somebody says these trees, these robot trees on Patrick Street and Grand Parade remind me of the Chelsea Garden in Fitzgerald's Park. Uh, they're the same, a waste and in that case, it was a waste of €600,000. That money could have been spent up the Lee Fields on various projects. That's Dear McGavin's Eye in the Sky that won the Chelsea Garden Award and uh, Cork City Council bought it and put it up in Fitzgerald's Bar. Mind you, they, they didn't even put it into storage. They just left it to just uh, go to Rack and Ruin uh, down around the marina and then did it up and put it in. It's fine there. It's nice there, but it's not six hundred grand nice. Um, you talk about the robot trees and I think uh, everyone from day one thought it was a stupid, expensive idea. Eamon Ryan had a hundred million of electric buses sitting in storage in Dublin because there was nowhere to plug them in and charge them. Oh my God, doesn't that remind me of the printer? Remember the big massive printer they bought for Dollair and they couldn't get in through the door? It was, it was too big for the room. Anyway, uh, like how long does it take to build and fit out 120 electric buses and they couldn't even get the charging points installed in time. It's like buying a €2 million euro Doyle printer and nobody measured the room to make sure it would fit. And remember, we are still renting 250 Garda cars since the start of the pandemic. We never bought them, uh, says Desi. And that's just the few things I know about. Keep them coming, Desi. You always have very good texts, I have to tell you that. With regards to St. Coleman's, uh, regarding the bomb threat in St. Coleman's school, wouldn't you thought they would have executed a fire drill, got all the students out of the school instead of telling teachers to lock the students into their classrooms? We got a message to say the threat hadn't materialised but what if there was a bomb and the students were locked or kept in their classrooms? A good point. Um, the best thing Cove Community College ever did was to open up the toilets and take the doors off the entrance. Shelley speaks so much sense on air. My son did six years in the school and never once used the toilets because of antisocial behaviour and smoking. At the moment, if my child needs to use the toilet, I have to bring them home to use the toilet at home. I can tell you the school are right, but they're fighting a losing battle, and I hope it works. For God's sake, what is wrong with you with seeing someone walking in and out of a cubicle? You see it every time in an aeroplane, would you ever get a grip? One final one. Regarding the school in Cove, why are you calling them bathrooms when there are no baths in them? Why not call them toilets, which they are, says Kieran. Okay. Uh, wrist slapped and corrected. Thank you for that. Uh, just, one, just one or two quick ones before I love you and leave you for the day that's in it. Just staying with um, the conversation I had with Mick Barry and indeed with uh, Three Little Piggies, Paul Walsh. John, good morning. Good morning, Neil. Just briefly, what's on your mind regarding all of this? 
Well, well, this is a more general reflection, really. We all know what's entailed in a murder trial. Oh, we listen, I have to warn you that you can't say anything in any worry. way that would I'm impede the deliberations of a jury. I'm well aware of that. Oh, no, but I'm obliged I'm to remind you. I'm obliged to remind you. Yeah, but I was reminded already by Kevin. But well, he's, doing, he's doing a good job then. Thank you, Kevin. All right, okay, okay. okay. Go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Anyway, no, my point is, I'm not talking about any specific trial, but I'm talking about the whole palaver of a murder trial. Lawyers, barristers, judges, juries, you know, the whole thing. That It can go on for weeks, as we know. Massive media so attention, column inches, talking about it on radio, television exactly, reports. Yeah, okay. Yeah. okay, go ahead. And then it's also you to say and all that. But I was only reflecting recently... Uh, look at all that's involved when one individual is accused of murdering another. Meanwhile, tens of thousands are murdered in Gaza. Who's going to be brought to justice for that? Isn't that amazing? You can murder thousands and get away with it. Murder one person and you're put on trial. I know, it's a stupid point, maybe. Uh, I, I suppose it proves that the Irish legal system works and that everybody's entitled to a defence. We are helpless as a nation with regards to the other part of your, of your observations. We cannot control how anything plays out between Israel and Palestine. That's the problem. I know that, I know. But judging it just as a human phenomenon, uh, you can get away with murdering thousands of people and call it a war. You know, it's crazy, like, when... You, the the, the, the well, thinking on war, like, is madness. It could, uh, it could ultimately result in um, uh, a, yeah. war cri- a war crime on either or both sides in The Hague, you know. I know, yeah. The likelihood of that is slim, I'd say. But it can happen. And we've seen that rising out of the uh, Yugoslav war. People were put on trial. Milosevic and those uh, for war crimes... But you know what I mean? It seems to be like in a war situation, a cat blanche, kill, kill as you go. It's crazy, like what happens, what gets into the human psyche that allows them to commit these crimes. Well, the world, to a large extent, well, yeah, sits you know, on its hands. Yeah, but anyway, I can, I, can I leave you there with one thought, one fact, what started chewing over for the day from the 7th of September, 1940. For 57 consecutive nights, London was bombed. And in that bombing, 40,000 people died mm. and up to 1 million homes were destroyed. Blitz. Yeah. There's the face of war now. Yeah. Oh, listen. Thanks very you're much. That was you're, my point. Thank you. You're preaching to, thank you very much for that. You're preaching to the converted, John, when you talk about the futility of war. Meanwhile, last I'll come back to everything else in the morning. Text 0868104106. If you have a story to share, and many people do, and you'd like to get it down, you can email neil at redfm.ie. But got a lovely text on this morning saying, you had a nice story this morning about a man who went for a ramble and was reunited with his family. My son, Brian Anthony, has gone on a 100k run today to raise funds for Marymount. He's running around the lock, the Mardike and all over town. He's not a runner as such, so it will tax him. You might give him a plug and a shout out and let people know that they can join in and encourage him. He's a third year BIS student in UCC. He has a GoFundMe page if anyone wants to donate. Not just to giving him a shout out, but I got him on air as well. Brian, good morning. Hi Neil, how are you? Are you still running now as you're physically talking to me? I am. I'm going to speed walk at the minute. <laughs> what time did you start at? 
Uh, 6.20 this morning, oh, okay. April Lock. Okay, so how long will it take you to do this run? I was originally hoping it was 17 hours, but it's looking like it might be a bit shorter now. Could be 15 and a half. A hundred K in 15 and a half hours. Are you fit? Is that, I mean, I wouldn't know, but is that is that a good time? Oh, I've no idea. I've never, I, I've never seen anyone doing it as such, so I've no idea what a good time would be. All right, so what's the longest you've run in the past? Um, only about 30k and that was only last week only? Oh my um, god that's impressive in itself so how many k have you done do you think by now? Uh, right now it says I'm about 41 kilometres through and how are you feeling? grand actually so far I've had a lot of people kind of coming and going and running a few bits with me so that definitely helps no cramp or anything like that? Uh, not yet have you gone through the wall already? Uh, I'm not feeling alright you know and I've there's some caffeine there now if I need it and a bit of grub, so I'll be all right, I'd say. Okay, so where are you running? What's your track? What's your route? Um, I'm mainly, like right now, I'm on the running track in the Mardike Arena, and I'm hoping that I'll just do most of it here. Oh, so little birdie told me you might be doing a few laps of the lock. I did a few laps of the lock this morning, yeah, and I went down towards Musgrave Park, and then out this way. That's handy, you know, there's a... There's a hockey match on now, I'm taking a look at it. And there's a rugby match on later on the pitch, so I can take a look at that as well. So keep me, uh, keep me occupied anyway. Why are you doing this for Marymount? Uh, well, there's a family close to me you now. It's my girlfriend's family. Their father passed away cancer only a few few weeks ago. And they would always had the Marymount nurses now coming to and from the house. And they were very good. Like, they took a lot of... A lot of stress off the family, so I think it'll be good to give back, you know. And the idea is to give back as much as you can, raise as much as yeah. you can for yes. uh, for the palliative care unit and the work and the service they provide to families and people yes, who are yes, suffering. Yes, very a, good. Fam- have you set a target? I originally set it at five hundred quid because I had no idea of <laughs> what people would be willing to give, but everyone's been a lot more generous than I first thought. So I'm at, I think I'm. 10 or off 3,000 euro well done man with every, with every step you've hit 3,000 it would be great to double that at least before quitting time today wouldn't it okay so how we find that now on uh, online it's Brian Anthony 100k run on GoFundMe is it Brian Anthony 100km run on GoFundMe yeah or it's on my Twitter also which is Brian Anthony 000 what are you doing is in college what are you doing in college man BIS is it Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. you're walking towards the big bucks then, I'd say. <laughs> Hopefully, I hope so. You won't be walking, yeah. you'll be driving a Porsche 911 or a big Ferrari, I'd say, by the time you're finished. Something nice like that. <laughs> hope all right. So. Okay, go on. I'll let, let you get on with it, all right? What are, you, what are yeah. you eating? You can eat whatever you want when you're running, I suppose. Can you? Well, you a couple of hillbilly yeah, snack boxes or what? <laughs> I was thinking they might upset my stomach a bit, so I'm going to keep it bananas and bagels for now. Boring. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have a feast now tomorrow. Oh, you will. You have a big feed. Yeah, All right. Well, listen, good luck with that. I won't be on the air when you're finished, but I know you will. So get over that finish line, see how much money we can raise, and we'll give it a shout out again for you. All right. Yeah, thanks, Ned. Nice one, Brian. Take care of yourself. Thanks very much. See you now. They're the kind of stories we want on air. People with initiative, young people making a difference. Brian Anthony. So if you want to give a few bob, whatever you can afford on GoFundMe.com, you're searching Brian Anthony 100km run. He said a target originally of €500. Euro. It's already at 3000 I think it'd be great if we could double that. So anything you can afford, please, on GoFundMe.com, search Brian Anthony 100km run. And we'll see what he ends up with by the time he finishes 100k a little later on. 
today. I'm out of time, guys. Text 0868104106. Have a good day. I'll see you tomorrow. For more Red FM podcasts, go to redfm.ie forward slash podcasts.